Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to be talking about the Arab American University in Palestine. In fact, we'll talk about the founding of that university in the early 2000s. Several USU faculty members played uh, key roles in the founding and early success of Arab American University in Palestine. We're going to talk with two of those key figures. In the second half of the program, we'll be talking with Dr. James Thomas, who's now a USU Emeritus professor. He was involved in the planning stages of university's founding and served as senior advisor to AAUP's first president. In this half hour, we're going to talk with Cynthia Yoder, who directed the English language program at American Arab American University in Palestine. Her memoir is called This is Life, Five Years Teaching in Palestine. The memoir tells the story of an American English teacher working at a new university in Palestine during a time of political strife and upheaval. She describes the joys of life in Palestine against the backdrop of military occupation and the Second Intifada, which began soon after she arrived in the year 2000. Here's a portion of my recent conversation with Cynthia Yoder. Well, maybe we could uh, begin with uh, your your upbringing. Uh, you grew up in a Mennonite community, is that correct? Yes, I did. Um, and so, uh, how was that? Uh, you know, not all of us grew up in a Mennonite community. Um, this, where was this? Pennsylvania? Where was it? In Northwest Ohio, Archbold, Ohio. And there are quite a few Mennonite churches there, so it's a Mennonite community uh, in a sense. And I was in the Mennonite Church during all my childhood years, and then I worked at Eastern Mennonite University in the 90s for eight years before I went to Palestine. And when I went to Palestine, I got to think more about what it means to be a Mennonite, actually, because then I was faced with lots of questions. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Maybe expand on that. That's... uh... The very fact of being immersed in a different culture kind of makes you think about, I guess, your background a bit. Well, I, I am a, a staunch pacifist, and I believe in nonviolence. And when I was first in Palestine and was surrounded by violence, violence on both sides, from Palestinians and from Israelis, I felt very confused, and I continued to believe that nonviolence is the way, and it took me a while to learn that, well, I couldn't give pat answers about nonviolence. I couldn't preach my pacifism because I don't know how to put it. Maybe it's not practical um, to give pat answers when people are oppressed, and so I learned how to uh, listen and not be so judgmental because I think when I was there at the beginning... I was really judgmental about violence in general. So that was one of the ways I grew in my experience there, was to learn to listen and not judge and be more empathetic. I was going to ask you, it sounds like you did have uh, conversations, discussions. I guess it's inescapable. You're you're there during the Second Intifada, right? That you would be having discussions with, with Palestinians around you about everything happening. Well, it wasn't... Uh, just discussions. It was just being bombarded with the situation on a daily and hourly basis. So in the classroom, my students, you know, came from their homes and maybe they were held up at a checkpoint or maybe there was a curfew and they couldn't get to class. And so instead of carrying on with a normal lesson plan, you know, we had to take some time to talk about what's going on outside and what happened last night in your home village. And so as they told me their stories, I came to see that there's violence all around and oppression all around. And so how to respond to that became, you know, my challenge. And that's when I learned that I don't necessarily have to respond uh, other than to try to empathize and listen, hear what they're saying with their stories. So that was um, not so much discussions as just uh, constant storytelling from my colleagues and my students and my friends and my neighbors hearing their stories on a daily basis and taking that in. Yeah, quite quite the experiences. Did you have experiences? I know in, in the book you talk about, I guess, early on, 
security increases and uh, Israeli soldiers board your bus. Uh, you know, so it sounded like you had some tense experiences. Yes, very much. From from that first day when they boarded the bus to a night that uh, I spent outside in the cold, which is also a chapter in, in my book, um, because I and my, uh, my husband now, he was not my husband at the time, uh, we had uh, crossed the border to go into an Israeli city, and when we came back, we were not allowed through the checkpoint. We were told that it's too dangerous. There was a shooting in Janine today, and so for your own safety, we cannot let you through. And so we were very new at the time, didn't know how to call anyone for help, and we couldn't call anyone from the Palestinian side of the checkpoint because that was blocked. And so we spent the whole night outside in the cold. It was November. And that experience taught me a lot about what my students face and what my friends and colleagues face and helped me to empathize. There are so many experiences with soldiers that they're really countless, but soldiers came uh, to our campus on different occasions. We once were chased by an armored personnel carrier uh, while driving in our car and, you know, stopped and put our hands up afraid <laughs> and because people get shot in that kind of situation. So there are so many weekly stories of interaction with soldiers that it just became a normal part of life. Not that it was easy at all. How did uh, how did the Palestinians view you and your colleagues, uh, I guess Americans and other nationalities, uh, there? And did that change at all, uh, you know, during the increase in tensions and the violence? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Uh, at the beginning, uh, when we would go to town, to the city of Janine for shopping, you know, we would kind of be bombarded or attacked, in a sense, about being Americans and why does your government support Israel, and just really blasted <laughs> for our nationality. And um, in time, I think people learn to distinguish between our government and us as individuals. So, but it did take time. And even on campus, you know, I sometimes felt attacked uh, just because People, Palestinians, need to vent and need to express this wonderment at why the U.S. government um, gives so much financial support to Israel for their weapons, which hurt Palestinians. So I was all wrapped up in that, you know, for a while. But after, after time, that subsided a bit, which is good. In the meantime, you, your views are pacifist, right? Uh, and as you said, that you learned... Uh well, maybe just to listen after after a while. Did did your views on pacifism change at all during your during that time? No, I can't say that they did. I still believe that violence doesn't solve anything. I think that there must be diplomatic solutions to every problem in the world, and I think violence begets violence. So um, I didn't change my beliefs, but I also realized that there are no easy answers about what what the solutions might be and how how they might come about. That's why the conflict is so protracted. You know, it's been 70 years plus. The uh, title of your memoir, you chose to title it, uh, This Is Life. Tell me about that. Why, why that title? Well, it's an expression in Arabic that I heard all the time. I heard it in English and in Arabic, Hekel Hayat. And Hekel Hayat means, this is life. What can we do? This is our destiny. This is what we have to face. And, and we will. We will carry on. We will keep living our lives. We will carry on our daily, daily life functions. Uh, we will be with our families and love them. And no matter what is happening to us, no matter what the Israeli government is doing to oppress us. We're going to keep keep living and keep fighting against the oppression 
So because of the prevalence of that expression, I heard it all the time, uh, I decided that that was the best name for my memoir. Tell me about your students. You know, I guess there's some generalizations, and maybe pick out a, a couple that, that really stand out to you. You you had close interaction with your student. These are young people, young Palestinians, uh, going to university in a very fraught time. Well, I realized when I was writing my book, and I got back in touch with some students that I had communicated with over the years a little bit, that they are now the age I was when I was in Palestine. So I turned 40 when I was there the first year, and my students now are just turning 40. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So they were young, 18, 19, uh, maybe 20 years old, and they were in a co-educational environment for the first time, most of them, and that was pretty fun to watch them, you know, in their interactions with uh, people of the opposite gender. And there was a freedom there that they hadn't really known before, many of them. And, you know, they were typical students. Some liked to sit in the front row and, and were very studious, and others sat in the back and goofed off and, you know, didn't do their homework. So just like students that I've taught in any country or in any place, there's a whole um, spectrum in terms of their own motivation and their um, academic behavior. But then, because of the situation, that added another level that was, was new to me. Well, if I had to identify some students, um, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, I had a couple young women that were interested in biotechnology who were in my uh, advanced English class my first year, and uh, their first names are Lena and Nadia, and they both went on to do their PhDs in biotechnology and are working in their fields. And then there are a couple guys who were twin, twin brothers, uh, Kais and Kusai, and they were typical Arabs in the sense that they love to be very social and very talkative, and it's hard for them to settle down in the classroom because they always have a story to tell or they always have a joke to tell, um, but very personable and very fun. And um, I've been in touch with uh, the two of them now, so they both have children, they both have good jobs. They're both in business uh, in uh, different cities in Palestine. So you have been back in touch, at least with some of them, I guess, in the process of writing writing the memoir. Uh, by and large, have they, have they done well? I would say so. Um, I, I'm in touch with maybe half a dozen or, or a dozen, but maybe half a dozen a little more closely. And um, the ones that I know about are, are doing well and feel happy with the education they received and happy with the jobs that they were able to find and um, how, you know, they were able to develop themselves and their lives in spite of a difficult situation politically. Uh, so that's been good to learn about. Um, the university website has uh, success stories of students, and I think there are a 40 or 50 different success stories. So if you click on the student's name, and you'll see their picture, and you can learn about their uh, major and what they're currently doing. So that's been kind of fun for me to go to the website and try to find students that I had. There are a few that I, that I taught and that I remember, and then there are a lot of others from, you know, the last 20 years. The website is just uh, amazing because there's such a change in what the university was 20 years ago and what it is today. You know, my friends there tell me that I wouldn't recognize the campus if I were to come. So uh, I'm going to quote a sentence from the, from the book, from your memoir, uh, which is called This is Life. 
Uh, you talk about uh, that you were searching for, I guess you'd experienced it a bit, and you were going to Palestine and other places, you were searching for the joy of being myself while living among people of a different culture. So talking about immersion in a different culture. The joy of being myself while living among people of, of a different culture. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What's, what is it about that that appeals to you? doesn't appeal to everybody, I imagine, but it certainly appeals to you. Yes, it appeals to me very much. It makes me who I am. And um, I guess ever since that experience in high school, uh, I went on to college and um, found friendships with people from many different countries and found the joy in, again, in learning about their culture and just sharing from my culture. And so that part of me just expanded as I uh, left college and then went to Egypt and I was there for three years. Um, and, and I just felt that it's so much, um, it's so rewarding to be part of another culture, even though it's challenging, but there's so much I can learn. And the world is expanded for me. My mind is expanded. Um, my idea of who God is, um, became much bigger, and uh, so I guess that's what makes me tick, is um, the knowing that this world is full of so many beautiful cultures and people, and it's not just about, you know, one way of living or one way of thinking, and so ever since those early experiences, I have enjoyed all the relationships that I've been able to have with people from many different cultures. And that has happened in my job as an ESL teacher and also just in my life. Um, it has happened in this country and it has happened in the other countries where I have lived. I want to turn to talking about uh, the foundation of Arab American University, originally uh, Arab American University in Janine, right? And now it's called Arab American University uh, in Palestine. So you were there, I don't know, from the beginning, were you? Or very near the beginning of, of a creation of a new university. So tell me about uh, coming out on the ground floor. Well, I, I didn't know what I was getting into, for sure. Um, but I say that um, with happiness that I was able to be part of it. I did not look for a job that was building a, an English program in a new university, but I just happened upon it. And I had had, you know, these experiences in Egypt as well as taking students um, to the Middle East on semester-long study abroad programs when I worked at Eastern Mennonite University. And so when I saw a job posting for a job in the West Bank at a job fair for English teachers in Vancouver, I was quite uh, fascinated by that. And then when I was offered a job, I, I did take it without hesitation. So I didn't know what I was getting into because I didn't know how hard it would be to develop a language program from scratch with limited resources and limited teachers. And uh, then to add the political situation on top of that was just made it even more challenging. But um, it was such a wonderful experience to be part of. And we started really small. And um, there were three of us full-time English teachers the first year. And we had about 250 students that we were working with. And by the time I left, there were 16 full-time faculty in our program, in our English program, and um, we were working with close to a thousand students each semester, so a big, a big change. So there was a lot to do, and um, we, I had, I had a lot of good teachers to work with, and it was very rewarding. So I know that having international teachers from the U.S. and from other countries was really good for our students because Palestinian students tended to feel that the world does not understand them 
and the world does not care about them, and they're they're suffering um, this oppression of the occupation, and nobody cares. But by having uh, a handful of of teachers there who came from abroad and who did want to learn from the Palestinian uh, view and did want to interact with Palestinian students and did want to listen, um, I think that meant a lot and helped our students realize that they're not alone. And I think that was one of the most important parts of the international faculty. But aside from that, you know, uh, we all went to Palestine as, as professionals, as academics. And so I think we, we focused on our academic goals and we didn't, we didn't water down what we were trying to do just because we were working in a chaotic situation. We tried very hard to maintain high standards for our students and, and our students came to see that and I think they respected the international faculty as well as the Palestinian faculty for maintaining those high standards. Well, we're about out of time at the end here. Anything else that you'd like to say um, about about this experience? Um, well, I didn't know if this would be appropriate, but I had a couple poems that I would maybe like to read. So these are poems written by my students, and um, I did put some poetry in into my memoir. And poetry is a big part of Arab culture, so... I found their words very powerful. Here's one. Maybe the birds are free to fly. Maybe the flowers are free to grow. But we are just free to die in this land called Palestine. And this poem is called If. If you visit life, you visit a very big book. If you look in someone's eyes, you live in a secret world. If you visit a library, you visit another world you can't imagine. If you look in the night, you can see a very secret thing that you didn't see before. If you want to see agony, then you should visit Palestine. I think that kind of sums up um, the Palestinian experience of of oppression. And uh, my students are pretty good at and expressing that through poetry, I, I thought. And these are uh, presumably 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Uh, that's right, yes. yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing oh, those. Oh, thank you. Well, to wrap up, I guess I just would like to say, um, well, thank you for having me. And um, it's hard to describe uh, five years of my life in a short period of time but it was an extremely challenging experience to be in Palestine when I was, and it was extremely rewarding to help students improve their English and learn more about others and learn other views, and it was rewarding to empower them in that way. It was rewarding to learn to stand in solidarity with them, and it was rewarding to learn from them how to carry on in life, no matter what is happening, and they have a joy in life, and they have a sense of humor, and I learned I learned the power of that from my Palestinian students and, and colleagues and friends, and now in the pandemic, um, and with the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's been happening in our country, there are so many parallels. And so I've been able to um, think back to Palestinian resilience and, and see resilience in, in, in us as we face different things in our country in the present day. That's been an interesting reflection of mine. Yeah, definitely. That is, I, I can see some that there would be some parallels there. Well, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you. Very interesting. Thank you. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and uh, that's a portion of my recent interview with Cynthia Yoder. 
she was one of uh, several key figures from Utah State University who were in at the ground floor, in at the founding, so to speak, of the Arab American University in Palestine, which celebrated last year uh, its 20th anniversary. And uh, Cynthia Yoder, director of the English Language Program at AAUP, uh, we referenced her memoir. That's out and available. It's called This is Life, Five Years Teaching in Palestine. Following a break, we'll uh, turn to a conversation with Dr. Jim Thomas. He's now an emeritus professor at USU. He was involved in the planning stages of the university's founding and served as senior advisor to AAUP's uh, first uh, president. We'll talk with him following this break. Spanish language programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and the USU Office of Global Engagement, fostering diversity, inclusion, and cultural awareness by supporting international students and scholars and facilitating study abroad opportunities. Information at globalengagement.usu.edu. Support also comes from USU Extension's Healthy Relationships Utah Initiative, dedicated to strengthening relationships. Information about virtual or in-person courses at HealthyRelationshipsUtah.org. As a convicted felon, Chad Abshire was barred from possessing a firearm, but... He always had a gun on him. And even though the police knew about it... No one decided to say, hey, this is a convicted felon, and it's reported that he has a weapon. Let's get it back. Gun laws with no teeth. And who pays the price? On the next Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Franco Ordonez, White House correspondent for NPR. Having access to information serves as an equalizer. That is why UPR is introducing a 24-7 news, music, and community broadcast service for listeners who prefer connecting through programs available in Spanish. UPR Tres provides facts about health, education, and business heard in Spanish anytime, anywhere. Details at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. And today we're talking about Arab American University in Palestine. Several USU faculty members played a role in uh, that university's founding and early success in the early 2000s. And uh, those included uh, Lauren Squires and Deloy Hendricks and Steve Hanks. We talked earlier uh, in this program with Cynthia Yoder, who directed the English language program at AAUP. Now we turn to conversation with Dr. Jim Thomas, who's now an emeritus professor at USU. He was involved in the planning stages of the university's founding and served as senior advisor to Arab American University in Palestine's first president, a very key figure there at the founding um, and so we began our conversation uh, talking about uh, some of uh, Dr. Thomas's background. Uh, he uh, lived and taught in many countries, including Bolivia, Iran, Egypt, India, and uh, others, uh, living there along with his family. And uh, so here's a uh, portion of my recent conversation with uh, Dr. Jim Thomas. Before we get to uh, your experience there in Palestine, what do you think that did for you? This is, uh, you know, you... I, I suppose could have had a career just based in the States, but uh, your career took you to a lot of different places. That's right. But, yeah, uh, we lived in all those different countries. You found that an enriching experience? Took my family. They loved it. Mm -hmm. they, uh, when they were old enough, they learned the languages. I have a daughter who can still read Egyptian hieroglyphs. Wow. Yeah. And she went to the university there for a while and then graduated from here. But it was a, it was a marvelous experience because I got to see that Basically, everybody in the world is the same. They have mm. the same concerns. They worry about families. They worry about work. And they worry about if they can take a vacation or not. That type of, of uh, understanding was very important to me. And so we just kept going when the opportunities arrived. And after our children were, were raised and gone, uh, this opportunity in Palestine came along. So, mm -hmm. But having lived in all of those countries and getting acquainted with people government officials, you know, people are basically the same. And, mm. and it made me appreciate the fact that that uh, I'm not that different. Uh, and so the opportunities came, and we took advantage of them, and my kids were much better. They had an entirely different view of the world than mm. most American students. Do you feel like that broadened their horizons? Oh, oh so yes, to speak. Yeah. oh, yes. Yeah, and we had 
opportunities to travel around the the country that we lived in. Uh, we'd we'd travel on holidays. We'd travel to the neighboring countries. So I have a daughter that's been in forty countries already. Because when we were in Bolivia, we went to the countries around Bolivia, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Uruguay, etc. And uh, in Egypt, we went down east to, to East Africa uh, when we had an opportunity. And um, so it was just like that. And so I've been in a lot of countries. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking about uh, what is now known as Arab American University in Palestine. So tell me, how did uh, how did you get involved here? I guess the, the okay. an idea was put forward. Let's okay. form a, a university. How, how did... Yes, well, the way I got involved was the people who decided that they needed a university, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, one of the leaders, a wealthy person, uh, had graduated from one of the California universities, the State University of California at Stanislaus, and... Uh, when they said, okay, we need this university, let's get an American university to be our partner. And uh, so they went to uh, Stanislaus University, and they were interested in being involved but not in sending professors. So they said, okay, we'll find somebody else. And one of the people who really promoted that university uh, was an acquaintance of of the director of LDS Charities Humanitarian Services. And so she asked Sharon Eubank, who was the director and still is, you know, what university in Utah uh, would be the one to help us out with this development of this university? She said, well, obviously, there's BYU, which has a lot of things, and there's also Utah State. And uh, Utah State has probably had more international experience. And so... She called Morris Whitaker, and um, Morris Whitaker said, well, yeah, we'd like to be involved in that. Well, do you have somebody who can, who can actually go over there and live and teach, or do you have a number of faculty members that would do that? And he said, well, Jim Thomas is the person to do it, so that's how I got involved. <laughs> yeah, well, because you've had this experience. Good, because uh, I've had this uh, other abroad. experience, yeah, yeah. yeah, abroad. And I always worked with universities in those countries mm-hmm. uh, as an advisor or as a as a, uh, a researcher, uh, helping those people do their jobs, which was partly what attracted me to those jobs. Let their scientists have the benefit of somebody who has a good experience and, and can help them out, and that's what we did in Bolivia. So then how did you get uh, connected? The founders of the university then reached out to you? Yes, um, that's what happened. And so this lady, Diana Sufyan was her name, uh, and the future president of the university, his name is Walid Deeb, they came to Utah State in about 97, 98, and they met with me and said, we're going to build this university. Would you like to come and, and help with it? And uh, I said, well, yeah, why not? And then after we got into negotiations and before I left to go over there, they sent me a letter nominating me to be the president of this new university. So they wanted you to be president. Uh, Well, there's a story there. I was very honored. I was very honored. But when we lived in Egypt, the president of the... American University of Beirut in Lebanon was a person by the name of John Kerr, K-E-R-R. And he was there with his family. He was the president. Uh, and one day, some students walked in with guns and shot him dead in his office. Well, the family kind of panicked, and so his wife and two daughters and a son went to Egypt because they had good friends who were from BYU uh, in Egypt and so they came down there just to be away and get away from that situation as quickly as possible. So when I got to thinking about they're offering me this job, and a university president is a really soft target. And it makes a high statement because they're very public. 
And uh, so I just said, sorry, I don't think I want to do that, but I'll do anything else that you feel like I should. So they gave me the job of senior advisor to the president for everything. But this is the interesting part of the Mm -hmm. story. There was a 14-year-old boy there who was kind of tall and gangly that went with his two sisters and mother down to Cairo, and his name was Steve. The NBA. NBA. NBA that's player exactly and now right. coach. Wow. Uh, yep. And that's where wow. I, I met him then. Uh, and, of course, it, he, the, the family was just hammered. But uh, he did well, played for the Bulls, became the coach of the, is it the Warriors? The Warriors now, yeah. 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 And so I don't know if he'll remember me or not, but I remember yeah. meeting him, Steve yeah. Kerr. Wow. Okay, so well, small a little world. story. Small world. Yeah. So you you said, I'll do anything else. So they the, so he ended up being advisor. To everything. To, to, to everything. Okay. Yes. And uh, not too much academically, but to make the university run. Yeah. In fact, uh, the other advisors uh, who were the, the other teachers and advisors professors and so on, they they kind of uh, helped make it a bit humorous. So they, they had a, a T-shirt printed, and on the one side it said, talk with Jim and get Waleed's signature. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever it was, mm-hmm. I didn't solve the problems, but I, I moved towards letting other people understand how to solve the problems. And it was fine. It yeah. worked well. Well, I want to talk about that. Starting a university from scratch, there, I imagine there's problems. What, what, <laughs> what, what are some problems you worked well, through? Well, let, let me kind of begin. The idea of having a, a university uh, was the result of the Oslo Accords. Now, the, the Oslo Accords were called to be held between the Israelis and the Palestinians in Oslo, Norway, by Bill Clinton. And so Yasser Arafat and Prime Minister Rabin uh, went to Oslo, and they had lots and lots of meetings, and they came away with an understanding of how the Palestinians could have their own country. And it would consist of West Bank and Gaza, and they would have legal corridors so they could pass back and forth through the Israeli territory. And so with that idea that they would be a sovereign country, the Palestinian leaders, uh, especially in education, said, well, if we're going to have our own country, we really need to have a way of educating our youth uh, to the point where they can compete in the world as a sovereign country. So we need a university. And because quite a few of the Palestinians who were professionals, uh, had gone from West Bank and Gaza and got PhDs in various and sundry countries, including Germany and Australia and Canada and the United States. And, and so they were, they were very much in favor of having university, but they said, we can kill two birds with one stone here because if we have it an English-speaking university, then when a person wants to get a job in an English-speaking country or in any country, because English is so widely spoken, they can compete immediately. And so they said, okay, we'll do that. One of the problems that they foresaw was finance. And in order to have a university, you've got to have buildings. And so one particular individual who was very wealthy, his name was Yusuf Asfour, and 12, 14, 15 of his colleagues who were also very wealthy got together and said, okay, and he said to them, I'm going to put in $10 million into this effort, and I want you as a group to put in $20 million, so we've got a fund of $30 million to start. And so they started, laid the first brick, and they had the money. And with that $30 million, that's when I came into the picture. They had completed one building when I started because they'd had that they made those decisions uh, two years before I arrived. They had one building, but they were building a lot more. And I might make a note here. The Palestinians decided that they wanted to have all English instruction. But later in the history, like after 10 years, they started a law school. And law is 
a little bit different in the Arab world. And so they said, okay, for the law classes, those better be taught in Arabic mm. because the nuances for the law have to be observed. And so everything else was English from the start. And there were a lot of students who came who weren't quite up to snuff. And so we brought in a lot of English teachers uh, from the United States and other places, and they taught English up to the level of where every student could pass what is known as the TOEFL exam, and I'm sure you know what that is. Right, yeah. And so as soon as they could pass the TOEFL, they went right into the English-speaking classes of their subject matter, and it just worked wonderfully. And we, everybody taught English, even me. <laughs> I had some classes. Uh, I see, I yeah, see. Yeah, and, and my wife taught, and the wives of uh, several of the professors uh, were, were English speakers, of course, from Utah State, and others, and so it didn't take long before there was a general atmosphere of competency, and you'd hear the students walking around the sidewalks, and just with their own colleagues, they weren't speaking Arabic, they were speaking English, and, it, <laughs> and, and so we were very very satisfied that what we were doing there was correct. So this money was available, and uh, they built dorms, places for students to live. They set up a scholarship fund, and they've given about a million dollars a year in scholarships to students who can't afford to go. But there's lots of wealthy Palestinians. They're very uh, determined to do well. And so there have been a lot of donations come in and, uh, and yet, after about 10 years, these uh, first investors said, well, there's lots of things we still need. We need a big sports complex, and we need more housing, and we need this, that, and the other thing, and more laboratories, and that's all. And so they said, okay, let's do it again. So they raised another $30 million, and it just worked wonders. Tell me about the student body, the original student body. Uh, they were all high school graduates, mm -hmm. and, um, and so they would come with their certificate, but they had to make application. We normalized that. They made application, and those that were not suitable as having had the right training, we suggested that they take some courses, remedial courses, and most of them got in. They were students from many different walks of life, the very interesting thing is that more than half of all of the students who have registered at AAUJ are women in a Muslim country. And so they're graduating and they're going to many different places. Yeah. A lot go to Egypt to work as a professional, and they go to Syria and Iraq and Germany and Canada and Australia and, and so on. But a good share of them stay right in, especially those that studied business and economics. And uh, when we looked at the curriculum that we needed and the, the courses that we needed, we decided that we didn't need medicine because the Israelis have always made room for Palestinian doctors to study in their schools and so that they could treat the Palestinians and they wouldn't have to have the Palestinians come to their hospitals. And so they said, we'll train your doctors, then they can work wherever they'll work. But we decided that we would have a dental school. And <laughs> right off the bat, it filled right up. Everybody wanted to be a dentist. Mm. And so over time, when they started graduating as dentists, then they realized that there was a lot of practice that could be had if they had additional training. And so we had a graduate school in dentistry. And we had graduate schools in a number of other disciplines as well, economics and and computer science and those kinds of things. So it was a situation where we reacted to what the students were asking us to do. And that worked. Um, and it sounds like the students, you know, found jobs, et cetera. You know, they're in Palestine, other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, as, we, as we would say in the U.S., good placement mm -hmm. statistics, I would imagine. Yeah, well, they we uh, we organized uh, after well, I was only there two years, but at, uh, near the end of the two years, I told the faculty members and the and the uh, 
administration that they needed to organize an alumni association. So before too long, that was in place, and they now they can tell you where their graduates are, and the graduates have agreed to send money back, scholarship money, donations, and so on, and it's working wonderfully, just really very, very good. I've got their website up right now. So yes, isn't that nice, very nice website? Yeah, amazing. Yeah, and with some pictures of campus, looks like a, a, a wonderful campus. Oh, it it is. In yeah. fact, they've had enough money, sixty million dollars, that they could build what was wanted, hmm. not necessarily what was needed, but what was wanted. And so it's a beautiful place. I went back to uh, to West Bank uh, for the first graduation. That was in '04. During that first year, we registered 200 students, and it was a little bit of attrition, but when we got ready to graduate in the first graduation, there were 180 graduates. So we were very pleased with that, and uh, I visited back there uh, a few times, uh, and I decided that I would go for the 10th graduation because that was a a big celebration Mm -hmm. for them. Well, at that time, there was... That was in 2010. Uh, I think they had 1,200 graduates and about 5,500 students at that time. Now, if you see on the website there, uh, there's now 10,700 and something students there. And remember, more than half of them are women. And it's just so gratifying to see them do so well. Uh, and they're graduating now uh, 3,000, 3,500. I thought about that when I came to Utah State University for the first time in 1954. Now I'm telling you how old I am. <laughs> in 1954, Utah State University had about 4,500 students. And that was after, what, 90 years of existence? <laughs> wasn't, wasn't Utah State in 1888? I believe so, yes. Yeah, and so the 12 plus the 54, well, more than 70 years. Yeah. And they had only grown up to 4,500 students. So in 10 years, they were at 5,000 students, and now they're at 10,000 students. Yeah, yeah. amazing, yeah. amazing. And, and, the, and the good thing is that standards have not been lowered. The professors that we got, many of them were Palestinians who left Palestine or Gaza, left West Bank or Gaza. They went to other countries, got bachelor's, master's, PhDs, and then found a living there. And uh, when they heard this university was being organized, we had quite a few applicants from former, well, Palestinians who had international degrees, so to speak, and they wanted to come back and bring their children and make sure they understood what their uh, background and history was, and that they could teach right at the university there and, and make as good a living as they could in any other country. So we had quite a few like that. I wonder if you tell me a little bit about the first president, Wally Deeb? Wally Deeb. He was, uh, he was from just a small village in West Bank, and uh, he was about 45 years old, but he had immigrated to the United States he just couldn't take what was happening. So he immigrated to the United States and became a U.S. citizen and went to university, ended up in graduate school in UCLA in mathematics, and I guess he was a whiz uh, because he became a teacher at UCLA. And when they were looking for a president, I guess somebody remembered him and knew him and knew that he had those capabilities, and so he agreed to come and be the first president. And now there have been two other presidents since then, and he still lives in the Middle East working with educational institutions in bringing them up to world standard, and that's what he's chosen as his main job. But he was so interested in in finding youth that were intellectually well-endowed, and he would organize little clubs, little science clubs, little clubs that they could participate in that had to do with knowledge and learning and, and experiencing the, the excitement of, uh, of discovery. And he said, they're our future. I'm going to keep doing that. And, and he funded it himself, so it was good. 
So you you mentioned you went back, uh, you know, for the first graduation. Graduation, yeah. Went back for the tenure. Have you kept in touch with some folks there? Uh, yes, the with, with Waleed and, yeah. and one of the secretaries, because <laughs> uh, they helped us out a lot, and they had, they spoke good English. Uh, we we made sure that they could speak good English, so that they could deal with students and the professors who didn't speak Arabic. And um, yeah, I've kept in touch. Uh, when I go there now, I generally go through Jordan. I fly into Amman and then just take a bus down to the river and walk across. And then the Israelis on the other side who run that border, even though it's in West Bank, they, the Israelis uh, just say, yeah, where are you going? Well, I'm going to there. And, and they say, okay, sign these papers. And they give you a little visa and take a taxi and away you go. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. How far is it from Amman to the to the border? To, to the border. Boston. Maybe thirty-five or forty miles. Okay, not not too far. Not, not very yeah. far. Yeah. But uh, I mean, uh, looking at the the legacy of what you started, uh, you mentioned the explosive growth, and uh, I mean, it sounds like the university is doing quite well. It's doing very well. The people who ha- are still there, who were there at the beginning, just can't. Talk, talking about how wonderful it is that they've made this amount of progress, and and uh, I mean they, it's a city of it by itself. They've got this huge sports complex, a complete soccer field, and and uh, all kinds of buildings and things for handball and that that kind of stuff, and uh, the students just love it. That's a portion of my conversation uh, that I uh, conducted recently with uh, Dr. Jim Thomas. He's now an emeritus professor at Utah State University. He was involved in the planning stages of a university founding. We're talking about Arab American University in Palestine. He served as senior advisor to AAUP's first president. Earlier in the program, we talked with another key figure from USU who was involved in the early stages of that university, Cynthia Yoder, who directed the English language program at AAUP. And we talked about her memoir, This is Life, Five Years Teaching in Palestine. Other USU faculty members were involved, Lauren Squires, Deloy Hendricks, Steve Hanks, and others. And uh, you can find out more about AAUP today at aaup.edu. Um, and if you'd like to hear more from Cynthia Yoder and uh, Jim Thomas, uh, we have the full interviews that I conducted recently with each of those individuals. We'll have those up with this episode on our website, upr.org. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and the Cache Valley Chamber of Commerce, presenting the Cache Business Women's Conference at the Riverwoods Conference Center. Featuring Dr. Lindsay and Dr. Lexi Kite, co-authors of More Than a Body, Your Body is an Instrument, Not an Ornament, October 20th from 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. Information at cashchamber.com. Support also comes from the Flower Shop in Logan, offering floral and planter creations for life celebrations and special occasions. Located at 202 South Main in Logan. Information available at loganflowershop.com or 435-752-1776. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and heard online at upr.org.